and during some of the toughest times I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time even to this moment uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies such as leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings actually come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere that books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the book via audio on Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased the book, and I've been overwhelmed by the responses that I get weekly, daily, monthly from all of you about how you're shifting your mind. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching from myself. It's designed for executives who are interested in growing learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our next Accelerator launches in July, and we still have a few spots left. If you're interested in learning more about coaching from me, feel free to email me at brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. We've got an incredible community that we're building, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our past conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach for the podcast. And thanks to all of you who have already done so, let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Kevin Eastman is a corporate speaker and an internationally known basketball clinician who brings knowledge and experience from sports to the business world. He speaks on various topics, including championship culture, teamwork, leadership, motivation, and individual success. And we're going to get into all of 
those areas in this conversation today. Kevin has over 40 years of experience in the game of basketball, and he coached basketball at all levels, including 13 years in the NBA. While he was in the NBA, he was the top assistant for Doc Rivers when they won the National Basketball Association Championship with the Boston Celtics in 2008. And most recently, Kevin served as an assistant coach and vice president of basketball operations with the Los Angeles Clippers. Kevin has worked with or coached an impressive group of current and future NBA All-Stars, both as a coach and as a Nike basketball director of player development for the nation's elite college and high school players. He continues his work with the young elite players through USA Basketball and speaking to Nike audiences. Kevin's going to get into his journey into basketball, and this really is about his journey as a coach and everything that he learned along the way. This conversation also gets into Kevin's upbringing and some of the challenges and traumas that he really experienced when he was a kid. But Kevin at his core is a curious lifelong learner. He's a note taker. During our conversation, he had pen and paper ready and he was constantly scribbling notes. It's clear that Kevin loves to learn, especially when it comes to leadership and culture. So without further ado... I'm so excited to present to you, Kevin Eastman. Kevin, so excited to have you on the podcast. I've been following your work and I've been fortunate to sit in on some of your speaking. And every time I hear you speak, there is such intention with the words that you use. And I think the coaching community is grateful to have you as part of their community. And I know I'm grateful that I've been able to hear you speak and read your book and, and listen to some of your thoughts. Where I'd love to start is back to your childhood, because um, in learning more about you, you had an interesting upbringing, and there was some some trauma in there, some some tough stuff, um, and also uh, some complexity. So I'd love to start there and just give people some perspective as far as what your upbringing was like and how you became you. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in southern New Jersey actually was born in Northern New Jersey, but uh, from the, my memory anyway, uh, Southern New Jersey, a small little town called Haddonfield. Uh, it's right across the river from Philadelphia. Uh, so our big trips, if we ever did one, were to the big city of Philadelphia, uh, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was fun at the time. Um, and uh, grew up just kind of like everybody, except uh, a couple things happened uh, uh, along the way, maybe that uh, we didn't foresee. Um, we had a smaller family of uh, three boys, uh, and uh, when when I was young, about uh, five years old, as I recall. But as we talk about this, for some reason, I blanked it all out. So when I was very young, say five years old. Uh, my natural mother committed suicide. So, uh, of course, I didn't know what that was at the time. Uh, I just knew that uh, one day she was there and then the next week she wasn't there. Uh, and uh, my dad didn't really explain a whole lot, probably because I was young. So we ended up going a number of years uh, with my dad working his tail off, uh, trying to, to figure this thing out and, and kind of my older brothers taking care of this little young guy named Kevin. Um, so my guess is I started to formulate who I was even that young. I just didn't know it because you had to be very independent. You had to make some decisions maybe on your own. 
that you wouldn't have had to make, right? Because your dad's going to work every day. So uh, he ended up getting remarried and that's where we got the, um, well, for some of your listeners, they will have no idea what this means, but we got a Brady Bunch uh, uh, family. It's yours, mine, and ours. My dad brought the three boys in to the family with his, his new wife. She brought in six of her children because her uh, husband had passed away and then they had one between them. So all of a sudden <clears throat> we go from three to 10 children. Kevin, Kevin, how, how old were you when that transition happened? I believe I was nine, nine ish. Yeah. So a couple of years after that, a few years after that, after my mom. So you had about four or five years where it was your, your brothers and your dad. Um, Do you have a lot of memories of that time where it's, it's just you guys, or did she come into the, did your, I guess you call it your stepmom come into your life earlier, but it didn't formalize. What was that process like as a kid? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember, say, the courtship, right? Um, I, just, I just remember more of uh, my older brothers kind of watching out for me. Like if, I had a, if they had to go somewhere, they wouldn't leave me in a house, I'd go with them, right? Um, but for whatever reason, I haven't actually sat down with anybody but I just blanked all that out. Uh, like for instance, I can't even, like one of the things I speak about is this concept of regret. Like we should all take care of our regrets when we have the ability to do so. Well, and, and Wendy, my wife and I talk about this uh, every now and then, uh, but I think it's, I kind of regret the fact that I can't, I can't even remember like doing what little kids do maybe I don't know, hitting my mom on the butt and then going and running and hiding behind the sofa and then she has to find me. I don't remember any of that stuff. So I regret that I, I wasn't able, I'm not able to even pull that up, but, uh, but I'm oh, 100% okay with it. But uh, my point is there are many things that we kind of know probably will turn into regret that we could actually take care of right now, right? Could be a stupid little thing, like something dumb I said to somebody and now we haven't talked in a year. Well, why? Well, you know, we're both still living. Let's take care of that, right? So, um, so then what, where my memory really starts is in junior high. Uh, so, uh, and that's where I remember, you know, the 10 of us together and things we would do, we'd go out, we, you know, we had a team of five because we had five boys. So we could challenge anybody in the neighborhood. I think our record was 173 and 0 because <laughs> uh, we always played in our backyard. Uh, no, I, but uh, we were able to do that. We were able to play two on two, right? We could always rebound for each other. Um, But what I found, I guess what happened was when I was really young, I found that going out in the back or going to a playground and shooting a ball where I didn't need anybody else, and I really enjoyed it, uh, that's really really what got my start in the game. Uh, Because it was someplace I could go where I could just do something I loved to do and didn't have to bring anyone in because my dad's working, my brothers are doing their thing, I can do my my thing. Um, So that's kind of... And what was your what was your relationship like with with your non natural mom the the woman that your your dad married? Yeah, mine was good. Um, my two brothers probably not as much, uh, and maybe that's to be expected because they had more years underneath, right? My natural mom, but for me, it kind of was so much of my uh, you know youth that it was more natural for me. So, um, uh, but you know, in a, in a family of 10, 
a parent like can only talk to each kid like so much, right? Like sometimes Wendy and I say, we only have one child, Jake. And we're thinking, dang, man, I'm with him all the time. <laughs> you know, how can you do nine others? Uh, Probably. So that, back up, I, I just commend my, I mean, that, that would have been hard. Probably some upsides and downsides of being one of 10. The upside being you can just go out and play with your brothers and have some freedom and some independence and maybe get away with stuff or uh, learn and grow and, and just find the world for yourself. Um, maybe some downside in um, the attention that you get, the way you're mentored. Um, so I could see some upsides and downsides. I'm curious, having one child and being part of a family of 10, what have you observed? Obviously there are different roles as a son and as a father, but what have you observed as far as what your son is getting and, and what you might've gotten as a kid as well? Well, I've observed that uh, young boys are pains in the butt. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, you know, uh, because I was coaching and uh, dove into that almost too much probably, uh, Wendy was the one who more or less uh, raised Jake, right? Because I was gone a lot. Um, so, uh, but I mean, Jake really was easy. He was so easy. He was intelligent. Uh, he never ever got in trouble or he did an incredible job of hiding it from us, uh, which I don't think was the case. Um, he found a love in basketball as well. So that was something he could do on his own. And, you know, when you're an only child, uh, you don't can't just go to your brother and say, hey, let's go play one on one. You know, so it allowed him and he's kind of like me in that uh, very independent at times of the day or maybe a week or a month could be more even of a, of a loner where they're they're into their own thoughts. Right. And he's now he's done a terrific job. He's a scout for the Boston Celtics. So he was able to enter, to enter into a profession that he loved. Um, so, uh, but I, I mean, he was easy. He really was. I find it interesting that you are so curious and so reflective and introspective, but when it comes to this massive moment of your life, that it doesn't seem like, hey, I, like I, I've just sort of don't have a whole lot of memories. Um, but it doesn't sound like you've gone back to try to really learn more about what happened with your mom. Am I reading that wrong? Or have you also gone back and really learned and become educated on perhaps what she was going through or, or what might have happened with her? Have you spent time on that? Yeah. Yeah. But there's certain things of, of that part of it that I will never put public in terms of what she did and how she did it and um, uh, what might've led up to that. Uh, but yeah, I've even, um, matter of fact, Wendy and I, when we were up in uh, North Jersey, we almost interviewed my dad's sister, who was really close with my natural mom. So we found out a bunch there, you know, little things like, uh, like Kevin, your personality and hers is almost exact. Wow. Like you have this funny little sense of humor that, uh, you know, we don't even know it's going to come out at a certain point. Um, I guess our, uh, you know, we care about other people. That was a big thing. Um, we look alike, right? So I've been able to see that through pictures. Uh, as a matter of fact, on the bottom right of my computer, I have my mom and dad's picture, uh, them getting married, the three sons, all that stuff. 
Um, <clears throat> so as a matter of fact, I just had a, a little bit of a conversation with my son when I went up to visit him in Boston the other day. Uh, I had these pictures on my computer where you're looking at something else. And I said, Jake, let me just go through these, these pictures so you know even a little bit more. Um, so I went through some things with him. So, um, you know, we're, we're like, uh, I'm probably like anyone else. There are things you're more than willing to let out and let anyone know. And there are things that uh, are private to you and um, they will remain private no matter how good the question asker might be. Uh, it makes complete sense and respect the hell out of that. I, I just want to go to mental health because mental health has gotten uh, a little more light, especially with the NBA. And I often think the NBA leads the way on, on some of these challenges that our society faces and Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan obviously came out and have shared some of their challenges with mental health, uh, being in the trenches and traveling and, and being involved in those ecosystems. Um, and given your, your background, I'm curious to get your perspective on what you've observed, what you've witnessed, what you've noticed and how you think about mental health as it relates to professional sports. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that that uh, Kevin and Demar, who I both know and both I worked with both of them when they were in high school, actually uh, through Nike, with some uh, events that that we put on. So so glad that they would come out and uh, let others know that hey, it's okay to not be 100% what people would say is okay, right? You can still reach a very high level in whatever you love uh, and still have some issues that you have to work through. So that's number one. Um, number two. Uh, for me personally, even though I dove into it, uh, my career, um, for whatever reason, either chemically in my mind or, or whatever, <clears throat> I never had any of those issues. Um, so, so I was very fortunate there. You know, as I do my thing now and, and, uh, and speak around the country and I'm with a number of CEOs and C-suite level people and, you know, before I go in to speak, I'm usually talking to them a little bit about what's going on. And this always comes up, right? This concept of, of just, uh, you know, health management. And um, one of the things I always talk about is uh, take a look at your culture. It may be that some people in your organization are struggling through some things that you are contributing to, right? And I haven't fully vetted this out in my mind yet, but just recently, because I was on a um, uh, podcast the other day, actually a presentation of Zoom, I guess, talking with a bunch of uh, executives in, in, in the world of radio and advertising and marketing, et cetera. And they asked the question about mental health. So my, my point about the culture is, be careful, you may have a culture of guilt and you don't even know it. It's not on the wall, which has all your culture, right? It's not in the handbook that every new employee gets, this is our culture, but it's a culture of guilt of having to work every single weekend, right? Having to put your job first, having to put your things that you love, uh, third, fourth, and fifth. When in fact, I have found since leaving the NBA, I can get a lot done between when I wake up and even 3 p.m. If I really focus, right? If I really focus, I can get a lot of stuff done. I think more of our, our, our attention in corporate America should be how can we get more discipline in the work hour when we're there and more focus rather than, than having to do all this extra stuff, right? Because 
to me, I understand this, this concept and word of balance, but I think most people, if something is a true priority to them, they get it done. And there are certain things that I will prioritize in my day that I have to get done. One of them is just now hanging out with Wendy, right? Now she may want, she may not want the many hours that I put into that, but I mean, she can tell me that. But another one is I want to uh, work out. So I have blocks, priority blocks that I have to check each day. And one of them is a, a work block. And within there, then that's where my TTD, my things to do list comes, comes down. Uh, so, um, I, 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 and I think you brought up this off camera, which I think is unbelievable. You're working with someone and, and you kind of had the assignment that you gave them of uh, what brings joy to you? Well, joy is not allowed to be talked about once you enter the uh, parking gate, right? That is actually in someone else's culture. Well, when in fact, it should be in all of our cultures. If you call it joy or you call it uh, uh, just can't wait to get into work. You know, I don't use curse words a lot, but allow me to just say one thing here. I kind of used to have, when I took over as vice president of the Clippers, kind of in my mind, and when you came into the parking facility, there was a gated, uh, you had to put your card up to the thing and, and open the gate. Because in the NBA, I mean, there's fans outside, even your parking of your practice facility, parking area. So I called that the oh shit gate. And what I meant by that was they drive in, they get to the gate, they put their card up and they can say one of two things. Oh crap, I gotta go in here. I gotta work for these people. I gotta do this another day. Or they can get to that gate like I did every day before the window even got down, I was waiting with my card to check in because my, my mindset was, oh shit, I can't wait to get into that building today. I can't wait to get into Doc Rivers meeting. I can't wait to work with the employees that we have, right? So, but I know this, a culture of guilt, usually that's the invisible culture, but a very powerful culture. We have to be careful of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you're hitting on gratitude, right? Am I grateful to be there? Um, am I excited to be there? Or is it a chore? And you painted a picture about you know, what are we doing on the weekends? Are we putting the job first? What are we sacrificing? And I've been fortunate to be pretty up close and personal with three different NBA teams. And uh, I've worked with NFL players. And, and I know that there are people that are saying, oh, shit, I got to go in today. And as you were describing the, the choices that people might have in the corporate world, choices are actually less uh, available in the sports world often because there's a schedule and it's a pre-made schedule and you have to follow it. There's one thing that I observed though that I want to get your perspective on, which was I would say in the early to mid 2000s, I would see these teams um, have shoot arounds in the morning and they would get into a city and they'd be late and maybe the players would go out or maybe they do a late dinner. And then the next morning at like 9.30, 10 a.m., they had a, 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 shoot, a shoot around or a walkthrough for the day. And I would watch them and usually like it would be freezing in the gym. The guys would have their hoodies on and their sweatpants on and they'd be like sleepwalking through the, the walkthrough. And I believe that this changed 
from the Boston Celtics, I believe. You could correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you all were the first ones to say, hey, this is not a good use of our time. We'd rather our people sleep. We'd rather them get rest. And we know that our schedules are off. And now I don't think any NBA team really does the, the walk through shoot around morning thing anymore. Am I, first of all, correct me if I'm wrong. And second of all, if I'm right, I'd love to hear a little more knowledge that you might have about why that shift occurred and, and how you think about it. Yeah, well, my guess is that some teams still do it on occasion. You know, one of the jobs of a leader is to, to read their team, to get a vibe on their team, to get a feeling of their team. And you just have to figure out how you're gonna do it. Like one of the things for us was with that Boston team, if Kevin Garnett is tired, everybody's tired, right? Because he never gets tired, right? And Doc was not this leader who had to make every decision. So it was an open conversation about what do you think about tomorrow? Uh, and sometimes it would take place on the plane as we're flying from one city to the other. But um, in Boston, we had a sleep doctor, a guy from Harvard. Um, and... Uh, he, he started to get us to uh, think more about uh, staying in your, your natural 24-hour pattern, sleep pattern. Uh, so when we went west, you know, it can't work in every city you go to. So that at least got us thinking, hmm, do we actually need to be out there? Um, and Doc and Pop, Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs, were probably some of the, the first people uh, to call off shoot-arounds. We still allowed some players who their rhythm was, I need to get in a gym the morning of and take shots. Usually assistant coaches would go. But it really wasn't this, once we, we were made aware of it through the sleep doctor, it really wasn't that big a conversation. We didn't really like go back and forth on it, right? Even like what city you coach in? Like in Los Angeles for Chris Paul, who lives north of, of, uh, of LA, with the traffic out there, it's probably 75 minutes to get to the, the morning shoot around, 75 to 90 minutes back. So he might be three hours in a car. That didn't make sense. We just wanted him to take the one drive and we would get there three and a half hours before game time and do our walk through there. So um, we tried it. Uh, it didn't really affect results. We didn't see major changes in, in players' productivity we kind of watched for that uh so it just you know sometimes logic tells you what you should do one of the things that's going on right now as we record this is college basketball is is going through this process of uh, there's never been so many kids transferring and there's this transfer portal and kids now have the opportunity to to change teams without sitting out a year and so I think last time I checked, there was like 1,200 or 1,300 kids that had entered this transfer portal. And you're seeing this movement in college basketball that seems unprecedented. I know it's, it's gone up a lot, but this year especially. And as you're talking about Chris Paul, I'm hearing you say, hey, for Chris, it doesn't make sense to do this, but maybe for someone else, it makes sense to do that. And as college coaches are dealing with the challenge of kids moving, um, I'm curious to get your perspective on how do you get the team to be selfless and buy into something maybe bigger than themselves or be all in about the team and what the team wants to do while still giving individuals the freedom, the autonomy, the joy, um, all of that stuff to operate independently and individually. So I guess my question is, how do you create 
selflessness or being part of something bigger than yourself while also acknowledging human beings desire to also be autonomous yeah well in any in any position of leadership you do have to fight human nature right whether human nature says to slack off when you're doing really well because it's automatic now we can turn it on Human nature uh, is when it's not going well for me, I look somewhere else, you know, so we, th those are givens of leadership. And if you can't deal with that, then you shouldn't be in that position, right? So th there, there is so many parts to the question that you just asked. Allow me to address maybe one or two so we can, can continue or go deeper, whatever. I think you have to start before you start, meaning you have to define what the fit is for your team or your organization. Like who thrives in those organizations? It's not always the, the, the person with the most talent, right? So I think you have to first define what does actually fit me. Now, in, in my probably illogical way, and, and when I work with uh, companies, I talk to them about this, because uh, the best way to have a motivated team, hire motivated employees then you don't have to do the work, right? Everyone wants these team building exercises, right? Everybody wants them. Well, how about go to step one first? Build the right team. You may not have to do any exercises, right? Well, so and Kevin, Kevin, I would also say like, well, what are they motivated by, right? Because um, I might be motivated to make money, but I might not be motivated to help us win, for example, or the order of what I'm motivated by might impacting. So if it comes to my ability to earn compared to my ability to make an extra pass, I, th those might be in conflict as well, because motivation for people comes from a, a lot of different areas as well. But if I'm hearing you, it's like, hey, what are we motivated by? And then let's find alignment with people that are motivated by the same thing. Right. You, you have to know yourself. Like, when I left the Clippers, Lawrence Frank, who's their president of basketball operations, we had some discussions and, and one of them centered around uh, getting back to the fit, right? Who fits Doc? Because Doc's a better coach when he has players who he loves coaching. Everybody thinks that players have to love the coach. The reverse is true too. Players give coaches motivation, right? Uh, I, there's friends I have who are CEOs. They're motivated by their leadership team uh, and what they accomplish each and every day, week, month, and year. It gives them motivation to come in and keep striving to, to do it their best. But when you get back to fit, one of the things you talked about is part of, I believe, the formula for what fit means. And that's intent. What's the intent of the person coming in? You have to, you have to gauge that. Like you gave the example of, is the intent to be with a great organization so you can win a championship? Or is the intent this team has given me the most money? And then you have to make your decision. The other three component, the other three parts to that four part process of fit in, in, in my mind is what are your values as an organization, right? Whatever they are, the list of eight, four, 10, you know, obviously you don't want 90, but, but there has to be a values consistency with who you have on your teams, right? Because the values are the lens through which you're gonna make all of your decisions, at least the way we looked at it. Right. Uh, then, then it becomes a matter of uh, talent. Whether you're like, if, if, if you're playing a, a sport, you know, you can't have like the four worst players ever to play that game on your team. So talent comes into play, but here's the deal. Anybody can get talent. 
we didn't want talent ever. We did not want talent, nor do any championship teams. When they really break it down, they don't want talent. They don't want players with talent. They want talented players. And there's a difference in the two. And if you look at those two words, talent and talented, the difference is the spelling. There's an E and a D on the talented. Those are the players that everybody wants. Those are the employees I hope everybody wants. What does that E and D stands for? An extra dimension. What else beyond your, your best skill do you bring this company, this team that can impact success or winning? And what I always say is when what you do well doesn't go well, what else can you do well to impact success, right? So we look for that extra dimension. For Kevin Garnett, sure, he's, he's got talent, but he just has this, this, this incredible ability to, to bring guys up when everyone's down, to get guys to go harder in practice when no one wants to be in practice. It's a unique ability. Rajan Rondo's uh, extra dimension was he got guys to understand how important the scouting report was because if the opponent had 109 plays, Rondo knew all 109 better than the team that were running them. So we brought everybody up in that area. Uh, the, the, we talked about intent. The other part is gaps. When you're, when you're creating your team or you want a, a great environment. And gaps to me is an acronym. It stands for greater awareness of personal shortcomings. Those are my gaps. That's our gap in the team. You know, one of the interesting things when Lawrence and I were talking, I asked him, what are gonna be the first couple of things you do once you take over tomorrow? And he said, first thing I have to do is hire my gaps. I thought, wow, that is brilliant. How much does that say? You unpack that, that's vulnerability, that's humility, that's a guy who totally gets self-reflection. That's a guy who's confident that he doesn't know it all. There is so much packed into that statement, I'm going to hire my gaps. But when you say that to people, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. You got a hole, you fill it. So here's what I think is amazing about basketball and specifically the NBA. You just, the two leaders that you just referenced couldn't be more different optically. You've got Kevin Garnett, who's seven foot tall, long, has a presence about him, whether he's on a TV screen or he's on a basketball court. And then you have Lawrence Frank. I don't know how tall Lawrence Frank is, maybe five, six, uh, you know, four, four. I mean, he's a small, like maybe redheaded guy uh, who worked his way up through the coaching circles in the NBA. And, um, but I'd love for you to unpack for us what made both of them elite leaders, because the reason why I'm fascinated by this is because it doesn't have anything to do with their physical build. And so often in sports, we're obsessed with physical traits, but both of them had something intangibly that you saw and sort of game recognizing game, like a leader recognizing a leader. So I'd love to just hear from you. What were the qualities? And they could be completely different, but what were the qualities that both of those people possessed? No, they were exactly the same. The only difference was their heights, uh, their looks, and probably their hair. Because Lawrence was maybe five, seven with no hair. Kevin was seven foot, although he never told anybody that because seven footers have different, like you're a big guy then. And that Kevin hated that. So he always wanted to be 6'11". Uh, so he, we ended up putting him at 6'11". 
Anyway, so what were the commonalities? The first one I think is really important and Kevin taught me this. He didn't tell me this, I just observed it. Great leaders never put a demand on the people they lead that they don't put an equal to or greater demand on themselves in that same area. That was Kevin, that is Lawrence. Number two, incredibly competent. They knew their craft, right? They, 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 they knew uh, what needed to get done. They had a strategy for how they were gonna do it. Those were all commonalities of both of those guys. Uh, number two, they worked their tails off because one of the things as leaders, right, uh, or to be a special player, uh, you've got to put the work in. And if you're a leader and you want your people to work hard, don't they need to see you working hard? How can they expect you, how can you expect them to follow your leadership but ignore your example? Doesn't work, man. That doesn't work. Matter of fact, anyone who lead is constantly trying to figure out the equation. Does he or she's actions match their words? Well, with Kevin and Lawrence, they did, right? The next thing you could trust them. You could trust them, right? The next thing is they were in it for the right reasons. That gets back to that word intent that we talked about in terms of what goes into figuring out what a fit is. Their intent was so that the team could win first, not so that I could show myself to the public first. Really, really important. They also had a great feel for when somebody was down and they hadn't, they always went to that person or group to try and build them back up, right? But to be in that club, you better put the work in because they actually might not, if you're in it totally selfishly, they, well, they'll tell you, first of all, they're very honest, right? But if, if you're not gonna put in your part, eh, you know, maybe we need to move on. So if, I were to, if, if I were to map what you're talking about, what I hear is self-determination theory. And for those that aren't familiar with self-determination theory, it's a theory in psychology that shows why people are motivated to do their job. And typically they're, they're motivated when they're competent and you started with both these people were competent. They knew how to do their job. The second part of self-determination theory is relatedness. And basically when you're talking about, are you a great teammate? Are you able to bring others with you? Are you able to cultivate relationships? Are you part of something bigger than yourself? That's what relatedness is. And then third is autonomy. And I would imagine both of them were authentic. You mentioned that they were honest, that they were aware. I love how you talked about Lawrence and talking about, hey, I need to fill in the gaps. There's an awareness there and a willingness for him to be authentic to who he was. Um, and, and KG also had an authenticity to him that I witnessed from afar, but it was so clear that KG was comfortable being KG. And especially for people his size, that's not always the case um, because they stick out. And so I think those three pieces, they're competent, they're able to create relatedness and also autonomy um, speaks to potentially their ability to lead. Um, you mentioned work and almost, hey, we're gonna put the work in. And especially for coaches, when we think about mental health, coaches are not always the most healthy group. I think it was Luke Walton a few years ago who said, you know, we're going to have a contest to see who's in the best shape amongst, amongst our coaching staff. 
But we watch coaches not always sleep, not always eat well, not always exercise, which you've said is a priority for you. And so when we think about mental health, I'd, I'd love to shift the lens here and talk about sports coaches. And we can even zoom out because I think American football, in my estimation, um, struggles with this mightily. And so it's not just a basketball thing. We see this in a lot of sports, but I love your perspective of being in the trenches. I think you were a college coach for a number of years. Um, you, you've been in the NBA. So you were at this uh, for, for a long time. What have you witnessed? What have you observed? And what can coaches be doing better to make sure that they're healthy, both mentally I shouldn't even say both mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever health means to them. What do you believe coaches need to, to ensure that they're also taking care of themselves? Well, I, I think first off, you have to put some fun into your life, right? Whatever you enjoy doing, you have to, you have to uh, not find time because average people find time. And what average people find is they can't find time. Successful people make time. So that gets back to why priority management is so much more important to me than time management. I know the books say elsewise, but uh, I, I just believe that uh, deep in my core. So, you know, I think what would really help coaches is uh, if we did a study on the Tony Dungies of the world, right? Because he ate dinner a lot of times with his family. He had, he figured out that he can spend some time in the things he loves. His faith is very, very big to him, right? And oh yeah, he won a Super Bowl. Now wait, how, wow, how did that happen, right? So I think, uh, and I can't give you the examples right now because I've not been asked this question really, but when you were about uh, 20 words into your question, Tony's picture came into my head, right? So, uh, you know, uh, and then sometimes those you work with like I, I, many times I would say to Doc, you ought to leave, go out. He loves to hit golf balls and golf and all. You ought to go, just go to the range and hit, hit golf balls. Like go, we'll take care of that. Go, right? Uh, that's why uh, working for Doc was a good thing because he didn't care where you did your work. You didn't have to play the office game except when the players were in. Right, because part of our philosophy as coaches was we want to be available to the players. So why would you not be in if you're not available to the players? But that you know, a pro basketball player he might be in at eight o'clock or nine o'clock, and he leaves around three thirty. So Doc didn't care at three thirty if you went home and did your work, but the next day in the meeting you better have proof that you did your work. Like for me, sometimes I hit a part of the day where uh, I was groggy, which everyone does. You know, sometimes I would just go up take my computer, get in a car, go to Starbucks down the street, get a totally different new environment and start pecking away. But that was fun for me, actually, where I'm fortunate in that uh, the work I do is a big part of my fun. So I think I get back to priority management and, and do you have the guilt culture? A lot of sports teams have the guilt culture, right? Like if you're not playing the hours game, then you're not a good coach. There might ought to be a rule in coaching in the NFL, Major League Baseball, up, 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 up. You're not allowed in your office from five to seven every night. And if you're not at home eating with your family, if you're at home, then you're fined. Right? Maybe we have to start forcing. But the point is, 
you know, the first guy, uh, Tom Landry was the one who originally I, I read a book on that he was home for dinner every night. And oh yeah, he won multiple Super Bowls, right? Yeah, the other management, I love how you say priority management. I think that's really powerful and, and way more helpful than, than I think time management. And the other management that Jim Lur talked about is energy management. And when I hear you say, hey, I'm a little groggy, I need to change my environment, that's you being aware of saying, hey, I need to change my energy. And there's been a lot of research done also on time of day and when you do things. And uh, Dan Pink wrote a book called When, which talks about when's the best time for you to do meetings, when's the best time for you to do emails, et cetera, et cetera. So I also think of like energy management and uh, that's a big, big piece that I think is important. And um, I, I love how you're thinking about coach health. And um, I think the football coaches of all the ones that I've been engaged with, there is a glamorization of having a cot or a bed in the office. And, um, you know, I think there are definitely downsides to that, that that can get in the way. One of the things when I did some research on you that I was so curious about, impressed by, was your Wilt journal and how you would not just have ideas, but also reflect and, and use those reflections to create action. So I'd love for you to tell the listeners about your Wilt journal, how you would use it, what it was, what it means, how it helps you. Um, Cause I think re reflecting and journaling is something that a lot of people just don't do. So give us some insight into what that's all about. Yeah. I probably don't journal the way like everyone tells you you should journal. <clears throat> um, but for me, you, you know, I always have my antennas up. And my antennas are usually in the areas that are most important to me. Well, let's just keep it on, on a job uh, uh, lens. So in my career. So when I was a coach, I might've had my antennas up for anything that someone said or wrote about pick and roll defense or or man-to-man -man offense, what, what, whatever it was, right? Well, now that I'm, I'm speaking 60, 70 times a year, what I try and do is the topics I speak on, leadership, culture, team, et cetera, et cetera. Anything time I hear something good or anything that can help me personally, as I'm hearing it, I'll probably write it down. I don't take my journal with me. That's the, this is the good part of Zoom. You're, you're, you're in my home office right now. So over my left shoulder, as a matter of fact, here are the two books I'm, I'm reading now, Barack Obama's memoirs and 12 lessons in business leadership talking about Tom Brady. By the way, great thing about leadership in, in President Obama's book. He said, uh, you have to have a bright line when you're in leadership. And that bright line is a reminder that you do not cross it. You have your non-negotiables, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, but a little further in the right top drawer over there is my journal, my Wilt journal. And that, that's an acronym. It stands for what I learned today. Wilt, W-I-L-T. Anytime I might take a note, like you mentioned something about energy management. I, I wrote it down as we were talking. So first of all, I put sustained thought to that when we get off or in the next, say, 24, 48 hours. What does that mean to me? It piqued my interest enough uh, that I need to put more thought to it. So whatever I see in that area uh, or something that piques my interest, I may not have, obviously, my journal, but I'll write it down and then I'll put it into my journal. If I am reading uh, a book, in this case, say, President Obama's book, I'll go in and there's a button. You can't really see it, but there's a bunch of highlights. 
then every highlight I make, I put a code next to the highlight immediately because if it's important enough to highlight, it should be important enough to code. L would be leadership, C would be culture. And then I'll tr any ones that are really, really good go into my Wilt notebook. Any ones that are, I think are good, but I'm not sure yet, I'll put that on a PDF under leadership, under culture, under blah, blah, blah. So for me, what does it do for me? I go back into that Wilt notebook every now and then because it reminds me of some things I should be, I should maybe either doing personally or I should put into a talk or I should put more thought to or it could help somebody I'm working with now. I just, I just uh, scan through it, right? And people say, well, gosh, you read so much and you take so many notes. What do you do with all of them? I actually, if they're important enough to write down, then they're important enough. After I write them down, I'll think about them before I put them either onto the PDF or, because sometimes in books, Brian, you've had the same thing probably, you'll highlight it and then you go back. I always reread my highlights. Doesn't make any sense, I don't know. And then, so, so it goes into the world for somebody else to grasp and use. And as I get older, I'm more particular. And I can't define that other than, no, nah, I kind of say it better myself, or I'm really particular about what goes into the Wilt Notebook now. It strikes me. I mean, you're clearly someone who loves to learn. You just got energized and excited to share these books, right? You're nerding out over your ability to learn and grow and develop. Yeah. Well, I'm not I nerding out. I'm just kind of... Uh, look, not everyone is as fortunate as you are to interview all these other than myself, these great people on your podcast. Hey, you have a head start on other people because you're talking to people. You know what? Um, well, I actually have met President Obama, but had I not only through, through Doc Rivers, but had I not, I now, he can teach me and I never will meet him. I'll give you an example. Oprah Winfrey would love to meet her. If you if your listeners would actually read about where she came from and where she is, there are so many lessons in there and she has so much wisdom. Um, you probably have a book back there. Yeah, I do. What I know for sure. I, was, I wasn't sure what the title was, but it just has tons of wisdom in there. And I agree with you. I think the reason I fired up this podcast was to create another opportunity for me to learn and to grow from people that I found interesting. And it's, it's an amazing time to be alive where I can connect with you and it's pretty special. Um, so I agree. And, and by the way, nerding out to me is, is a compliment. So um, oh, yeah, I mean I'm with you. <laughs> uh, I, I, so look, you've taken a path now where you're in this speaking world and we'll talk about culture and leadership because the C and the L clearly our focal points for you and, and our passion points for you. So I want to get into culture and leadership, but before I do, you've chosen to go down this path and go down this road, but you spent so many years as an assistant coach and so many years as a, as a head coach. And let's just imagine that you did want to go back to coaching where you're sitting. Would you rather be a head coach tomorrow or an assistant coach? If you had to pick one. So if you weren't, able to do what you're doing for a living right now. If you had to choose, would you rather go back as a head coach or an assistant coach? Well, my, my truthful answer would be, it depends on what level. Um, but what I, what I enjoy now in my life, you're asking if I went back now. So that means I'm currently where I am with my age and energy and all that. I'd probably say an assistant coach. I would rather uh, help then get all the accolades. Uh, Cause I, I'm big on, and that's why I left the NBA. 
um, I knew it was time. There were, you know, I wanted to actually do speaking uh, at, to a greater level because I enjoyed doing it one or the one or two times I had chances to in the off season. Um, and I thought I could impact more people than just the 15 people on the team. So for me, uh, I, I was looking forward to someone else getting my seat. I wanted someone younger than me to get my seat, to, to experience some of the things that I was so fortunate to experience, uh, and then to watch them, right? To watch them grow, develop, and improve. Um, so uh, I probably would say assistant coach. It's just interesting to get your perspective on that. And then speaking, I'd love to know a little more about how you prepare for a speaking gig, what your mindset is when you're on stage, and then let's go into culture and leadership and what you've learned in both of those places and what are some of the gems that you talk about and um, are passionate about sharing with the world? Well, my preparation, uh, you know, when I did my first speaking engagement uh, that I knew this was the start of my speaking career, I came from the coaching world. So I said, okay, how did we really get our best teams to prepare? Well, many times we would do what was called double sessions. You'd maybe go from 10 to 12 in the morning, then you'd come back and have a second practice that afternoon from uh, four to six. So I said, okay, let me put this strategy together. 30 days prior to my first corporate talk, which was to a big company, right? I said, I'm gonna practice my talk in front of the mirror or just in my office here two times a day for the first 20 days. And then the last 10 days, I'm gonna practice it one time a day. So I was actually, I gave my first talk 50 times before I gave my first talk. So when you ask about preparation, you know, uh, I, I, like everybody else, I would think you'd get all the things you think you wanna talk about. And then you have to whittle them down to, you know, how can I make this the core? Cause you only have an hour to 75 minutes and really get my message across. You see, preparation to me is defined as be there before you get there, right? Be there before you get there. Well, I was already at my first talk 50 times before I gave my first talk. That's why before I go on stage, um, there are two things that I want to make double sure of. That's why I go in early in the morning before even the conference planner gets into the ballroom. And sometimes you can't, but I try to do this every time. And I go up on stage and I want to see how wide is the crowd because I want to get my mindset set so that I make sure I'm visually and even with my body getting to both sides of the room. Second thing is I want to know where all the cords are. Right. Inevitably, there might be a cord going from your computer, which has the PowerPoint, you know, down to the to the, the area you plug it in. Well, to me, the worst thing that can happen to you as a speaker, they've just given you this incredible introduction. These people can't wait for the smartest person ever on earth to walk on that stage and drop pearls of wisdom. And three minutes into your talk, you trip over a cord, fall down. What do you do? I went to all the speaking books. And I was doing this on the pages. There's nothing that says what to do when you fall down over a cord, right? Now, I already made my strategy for that. I'm just walking the hell out because I'm done, right? I can't do anything to recover from that. But I do. I know where every cord is that I could possibly stumble over. That's for me. That's preparation. Obviously, I do a lot of thought, right? Uh, I, I think one of the most important things we can do in life is to create think time 
for ourselves. And that's not trying to find time in your day because you know what, uh, this morning I was looking for some time. So I remembered it might be in my car. I went in my car and found it, it's not there. Oh yeah, I left it on my nightstand. So I went to look for time over there. It's not there, it must be in my briefcase. Well, I couldn't find it. Well, when I make time, it's always there. So I make time to read, I make time to think, I, I make time to massage, I make time to take a uh, hundred bullet points and middle, whittle it down to, to 10 keys or five keys, right? So that's how I do, do my preparation for the, the speaking. And that was a long answer to a short question. So I forget the other part of your question. No, if I stack questions, nobody ever remembers the second one. So it's on me yeah. to not stack questions. And um, we learned that in psychology in school and, and you sometimes forget it because you get excited that you have two questions, but I never recommend stacking questions because the person, if they really answer, they're going to lose the second question. The second question was around leadership and culture. So what are some gems that you share with your audiences around leadership and culture? Well, I think there are two things, first off, that have to, you have to do a, a great deal of thought has to be put into both areas uh, because the leadership part of it is how you at the assigned upper level of that group or organization or company or team gets everybody to do what they do, right? And actually enjoy doing it. And then the other part is what is the environment with which uh, they will do that in, right? Uh, what are the words say that are important in your culture? We were never big into sentences. Our culture was more built uh, on things that were uh, easily remembered uh, and things we challenged ourselves to, to execute. For instance, for us, in every culture that I was in in the NBA, well, I was with Doc, right? So uh, the reason I think we were allowed or we were able to win the championship was we, 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 we figured out our fit and we, we brought in people that fit Doc Rivers and how we do things, right? But one of the foundational pillars of our culture was truth, right? We, and, and you've read my books, you, you, you know this, but basically what, why that was so important to us is because we felt we couldn't get anywhere if we didn't know the truth about how to get there or we didn't know the truth about where, what we were doing well and keep doing that or what we were not doing well that we needed to grow in, develop in, improve in, right? Make adjustments in. Uh, so uh, from, from that standpoint, um, uh, the truth was really important. And we just asked three things within that pillar of our culture. And that uh, whenever our players thought of truth, we wanted them to think of three things. You need to be able to live it, you need to be able to tell it, and you need to be able to take it. Now, some people might use the word integrity in their culture as they explain it. For us, truth was more direct, like more direct. So well, how do you live it? Well, no matter who you are in this organization, do your actions match your words? That's how you live your truth. You have to be able to tell it. Well, we felt to have a, a, a championship culture, we had to have an environment where it was okay. You had some psychological safety, let's say, which is a big buzzword now, to be able to say something in a meeting, to be able to challenge maybe a teammate or a coach's uh, whatever they just said, right? Basically, we're getting the truth on the table, but you can tell it in different ways, 
And we wanted to be told, and we broke that down, we wanted to be told in a respectful way. So you could say that respect was one of our uh, core principles of our culture, right? Uh, and then we, we wanted our, uh, and, and, and this is something big, I think, in leadership, uh, you know, sometimes you have to send or have difficult conversations as a coach, as a VP, as a manager, right? And I always say, ask two questions, who and how? Who am I talking to? How should I talk to them, right? And the only way you know that, and now we're getting deeper into something you didn't even ask about, the only way I know that is, is if I develop a relationship with that person. Truth and relationships are probably two of the most important areas, sections, parts of effective leadership that there are out there, right? And then you have to be able to take it, right? We wanted to have a culture where you, you had the psychological safety to take it and you had the, uh, the respect of each other uh, uh, to be able to hear it and then react to it. So that might have been a piece of our culture, but within that we have integrity and respect and also team, right? A teamness. You know, we, we think you have to have a teamness because teamness is defined as understanding what a team is, understanding what teamwork is, and understanding what teammate is. When you talk about leadership, um, I mean, there's so many aspects to that. You know, I always ask people to actually first step is to uh, uh, just kind of think about what leadership means to you. You know, what are the components of leadership? Like for me, it's uh, trying to inspire and impact people and to get people to understand that they have more to give and then to get people to understand that nothing of significance happens on your own. So in my view of leadership, it's about helping my people, caring for my people, trying to help them advance in their careers, but also understanding that it has to be done within the group, right? So I asked them, you know, define leadership in your own way, right? And I asked them also to, to, to define self-leadership. For me, it's that process of, of the growth I need, the development I need, the improvement I need to effectively get the most out of the people that I've been asked to lead. And along the way, I'm gonna try and make sure that I do everything that, that, that we get the me mindset out of ourselves and we get the we mindset into ourselves and we do it collectively. Because if I can become my best, there's two bests in this world. There's the best and there's my best, right? If I can become my best and I'll have the greatest opportunity to be the best leader I can be for my people. Um, but leadership, I mean, I've created a, uh, because I've been asked to by companies, a, a 12 module, well, it, depending on if you want to get into teamwork and culture, it probably is a 16 module program uh, for leadership teams. It's, so, it's, it's, I know we could, you could probably do a whole other podcast on it, but there's something that came out of what you were talking about on both culture and leadership, which was truth telling. And that's the first word that you start your book or with is, is truth. And I ask pro athletes, whenever I work with them, I say, who is the coach that you appreciated the most? Who's the best coach you ever played for? 
and they will give me a name and they'll say, well, what made that coach a great coach to play for? And they almost always say, they told me the truth. They told me what I, what I needed to hear. They told me the truth. And then I'll ask them, all right, who's the coach that was the worst coach you ever played for? And they'll say the name and they'll say, well, what made that person a bad coach? And they'll almost always say they played games with me. That's how they phrase it is they were playing games with me. And there's a lot in that phrase. There's a lack of a relationship. There's trust. There's truth. But to me, like that, that, that constant of, are you telling the truth? Are you willing to speak the truth? You have to, there's more underneath that. But at the end of the day, if you're not a truth teller, it's going to be hard to build a great culture. And it's going to be hard to be a great leader if you're unable to speak truth. And obviously a leader has to pick and choose what they're saying when they're saying it and be very intentional and thoughtful about it. But that stuck out to me as I was reading your book. I, I was like, yeah, when I hear from these pro athletes, like who's the coach that they felt like was their best coach? Who's the coach that was not, not who do they like the most, not who was the most fun to be around, but who's the best coach and who was the worst coach. They'll almost always say truth and playing games. And so that stuck out to me. Um, one of the things I'm curious to sort of wrap this bow and start to wind down and close here is what do you miss about being in the locker room? What do you miss about being on the bench? What do you miss about being in the NBA? Um, give us some insight. Yeah. Um, give me 30 seconds here to go back on the truth. You know, if people really put greater thought to truth, companies and teams, they would find that truth can be a competitive advantage if you use it right, because some people are afraid to say it, therefore they maybe don't be, they're not able to take that next step, right? Because they don't really know the truth about how to get there. Or they keep somebody allowing something, they keep allowing someone to do a mediocre job because they're afraid to, to speak the truth, right? So I see truth as truly a competitive advantage. We know what our flaws are. We know what our gaps are. We know what we need to work on to get to the goals that we have for Q1, Q2, Q4 of the year, whatever, right? So that, that's in the, in, the, in, in the truth category. Uh, and the other thing I'll say about the truth category, everyone on your podcast right now, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. We all need a truth teller in our life. Some of you who are listening have gotten to an incredibly high level of achievement and, and, and maybe position in whatever field you're in, right? That's where we need it even equal to, if not more than those who are underneath us. So have a, find those truth tellers, right, in your life. Now, getting to what do I miss about the NBA and the locker rooms? Well, first off, the highs and lows of winning and losing and the lessons learned uh, in winning and losing that you can actually come back from failure and mistakes. Right. Uh, and in the NBA, you have to because 24 hours later and maybe no question, 48 hours later, you have to play another game. Right. You can you can take a, a group that wears the same uniform at the beginning of the year, which the outside people call a team. No, they're just, just a group wearing the same uniforms, because I'm here to tell you the Celtics team. Kevin Garnett could have worn a pink uniform, Paul Pierce, a brown uniform, Rajon Wanda, a green uniform, Ray Allen, a yellow uniform and uh, perk a chartreuse uniform, and we still would have won a championship, right? Walking into the same building doesn't make you a team in the corporate world. Wearing the same color jersey doesn't make you a team. But seeing how you can put that together, that was fun. I'll miss that. And then also, uh, just my constant striving to help Doc be successful. That was so much fun, right? Whether it be giving him... Uh, 
in the beginning of the year, 27 pages of notes on, on my observations from last night's game and him being able to take those and do what he wants with them, me not bugging him. Hey, did you see, read my notes. Did you see that? Did you see that? Right. Uh, but him taking what he can and, and, and putting it into whatever it is we need to, to work on or deal with at that particular time. Right. And then, I, you know, my most fun when we won the championship was taking a step back, not even walking onto the floor for the first couple of minutes, other than to, to shake hands with the Lakers. Right. But um, just watching everybody revel and, and, and just seeing the release of everything from their bodies and what was coming out was we did this, all that work paid off, right? And just seeing the pure emotion of, of being able to say, you're the best, right? That was even more powerful to me than the parade. And the parade was crazy. I've never seen that many people. You saw 89 year old grandmas leaning out of a window, Celtics, you know, as we're going on the parade route around the city of Boston. Right. So that I always have that memory. But I go back to a, a, a great thought leader who has since passed away. Uh, his name is Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N. And he said something that, that actually held true when we won the championship. It, it wasn't what I got, the ring. It wasn't the ring. Even though all my friends wanted to see the ring, I don't think I've ever worn it. Uh, no, the only time it's been on my finger is when they gave it to us, they asked us to try it on to see if it fit. Other than that, I've never worn it, right? Because it wasn't what I got. It's what I became because of what we had to go through. I became more disciplined. I became more focused. Uh, I was able to, to, my observational skills about what was going on in a game, about the vibe of the team became keener and greater. It's what I became, not what I got. And that's the best part about success. It should be about what you've become to, to reach that next level of success. And I'll end here, but like Michael Jordan always says, success doesn't stop. He taught me this back in Santa Barbara when we were doing a thing together. Success doesn't stop once you get there, right? It doesn't, it doesn't. Because I have a personal philosophy that I live by and it goes like this. There's more inside each of us. And I know, Brian, you strive for it each and every day to pull that out of yourself. I try to do it as best I can. And the people who succeed in life are the ones that understand there is still more. Now, that doesn't mean you have to wake up every day and like yeah, go into your body and yank it out. No. Like Oprah said on our last show, take action on the things that whisper to you. Right? They don't shout at you. Like It didn't shout like, hey, Kevin, go into speaking. Just subtle things came about. Like I would watch 60 Minutes. Oh, I could put that in a talk. So my thoughts were about some of those things versus how can we defend the pick and roll better? So I started to analyze my thoughts at the end of the, uh, my last two years saying, gosh, you know, I'm having equal thoughts about how I can help other people outside of sports as well as, I was still doing a great job, I think, or, you know, I, well, I know I was for Doc, but I was, things were whispering to me. And then I find, you know, I, I kind of was looking through my notes and I saw that you talk about Wilt Notebook. It's in my Wilt Notebook. Take action on the things that whisper to you. And then finally it told me, you know, now's the time. So, so that was a tangent. It was a beautiful one. I'll let you, I'll let you keep going on your tangents. That was, 
that just had it was loaded and so i appreciate loaded tangents if they're not loaded i'll i'll interrupt you but those were loaded yeah you're good at that <laughs> kevin i, I want to just give you a platform to promote whatever it is that you want to share obviously people can learn about your speaking on your website uh i think you're on twitter um, where can people learn more from you if they want to bring you in for a speaking gig? How can they get in touch with you? Uh, just take some time to share a little bit about how people can find you. Okay, well, this is always the hard part for me because I am your uh, quintessential non-self-promoter. And then Wendy will always say, because Wendy actually runs our business. Um, my, I, I have actually a job description. It has Kevin Eastman, speaker, and she wrote this. Don't screw the talk up. <laughs> we'll never get another one. But no, um, uh, KevinEastman.net is our website. So certainly if people want to, uh, there's blogs on there. There's, there's videos of some things I've spoken about on, on, the, in, on the corporate stages, whatever, the sports team stages. So that can certainly be done there. I do and have done and now starting to do even more virtual uh, um, sports team and corporate presentations. You can get that on the website. The book we talked about, you can order that on the website. But I, I think the biggest thing I would ask people to do is if they like some of the stuff we talked about, and we didn't get into this as much, but I'm a big bullet point guy. That's kind of how I think and how I present. Okay, in this area, these are the four things we think are most important. In this area, these are the five things. Many of those types of bullet points are on my Twitter account. And I think we have over 5,000 tweets now on um teamwork, uh, at career advancement, personal development, success, uh, you know, coaching, leadership, all those things. And um, the last thing I'll say, since I am not a self-promoter, I've been told by all like the Twitter marketing geeks that I'm supposed to actually pump some of my stuff on my Twitter. Disregard those. Just go to the meat and potatoes of the tweets that can help you because I do it because people say you're supposed to do it in today's world about promoting your speaking and all that sort of stuff, but go to the, to the meat, because I think there's some stuff in there that might uh, help people's careers. Awesome. I, I love what you said about Wendy. Don't, don't screw it up. When I first met my wife um, and I introduced her to some friends and some family members, inevitably every single one of them would walk up to me and they just go, Brian, don't screw it up. And I'm like, what do you, why do you all think I'm going to screw this up? And uh, we're still going. So I haven't screwed it up and don't intend to screw it up. Um, but you made me chuckle when you, when you said that some of them used other language when they told me not to mess it up, but we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll share, we'll share that on another podcast. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and then LinkedIn is the other place that I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Kevin, when I first reached out to you, I was hoping I could come down to Richmond and we could do this in person. The world has changed quite a bit since then. And I'm grateful for this technology and for us to be able to connect over Zoom. And I look forward to the day when you either come to DC for a speaking gig and we can grab lunch or dinner or I'm down in Richmond seeing, I think I told you my grandpa is from there. He's not alive anymore, but would love to go down to Richmond and, and see some of my, my roots uh, down there. So appreciate all that you do for the sports community, for the coaching community and the corporate community. Community, we're better off to have you sharing and promoting everything that you have to offer. So thanks for being you. Appreciate you and looking forward to many more conversations in the future. No, thanks you, uh, to you as well, Brian. And I appreciate uh, your preparation in asking uh, 
many times better and deeper questions. So I think that's an, an important to get uh, maybe the, the depth of someone out. Uh, so you ask some questions, no, not some, you ask a number of questions I've never been asked. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. It, it wasn't what I got, the ring. It wasn't the ring. Even though all my friends wanted to see the ring, I don't think I've ever worn it. No, the only time it's been on my finger is when they gave it to us. They asked us to try it on to see if it fit. Other than that, I've never worn it, right? Because it wasn't what I got. It's what I became because of what we had to go through. I became more disciplined. I became more focused. Uh, I was able to, my observational skills about what was going on in the game, about the vibe of the team became keener and greater. It's what I became, not what I got.